Merry Christmas. We're at that point. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Thank you for braving the weather today. I know it was a little sloppy out there, but y'all are here, and I appreciate you uh, being a part of our services today. So uh, we are in a Christmas series looking at the gospel of Matthew, the first couple of chapters there. So Matthew chapter 2 is really where we're digging in, and it tells the story of the wise men and then their interaction with Herod the Great and then all the stuff that uh, unfolds after that. Um, I was told by Brian that we got 49 slides today. So we've, I'm going to charge right in. Our text comes from Matthew chapter 2. No kidding. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. It's the story of where Herod uh, sends soldiers in to massacre the infants of Bethlehem. So let's stand to our feet and read from God's word. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Here we go. When Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You may be seated. Um, let's take a look at these verses together. We're going to start at verse 16. Verse 16 begins, then Herod. The name Herod appears all over the New Testament. Here is the name Herod appears at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Jump forward 30 years into the New Testament to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And Herod appears again at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. For example, Matthew chapter 14 and verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Herod then appears three years later at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke chapter 23 and verse 7. When Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod. Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. And then jump forward 30 more years to the trial of the Apostle Paul. So Jesus has already ascended, going up to heaven. It's been a long time later to the trial of Apostle Paul. Acts 26 and verse 2, Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that would be Herod, uh, that it is before you that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. So what's going on here? Did this guy Herod have some sort of really long reign that lasted 60 some odd plus years? How do we account for the fact that he keeps popping up all over the New Testament. Well, to clarify, Herod is the family name of a ruling dynasty over the land of Judea during the first century BC and the first century AD. Think of the name Herod like you might think of the Kennedys, or you might think of the name the Clintons, or you might think of the name the Bushes. So this is a family that just stayed in politics and stayed in positions of political power over the course of multiple generations. I've got a picture for you here of the Herodian family tree. I don't know how well you can see that, but notice the name at the top of that thing. It says Herod the Great. He's the one that Mary and Joseph and the wise men interacted with in Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great then had a number of children by multiple wives. And when he died, his kingdom was split up into four zones or four regions. These were distributed amongst three of his sons as well as one of his sisters. All of this was done under the supportive eye of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, or Herod operated as a vassal king. That is that he was subject to what the Roman Empire told him he was supposed to do. Yeah, he was in charge of that region, but he was doing so at the discretion of the Romans. Again, the Herod that is mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 is Herod the Great, the father of this family dynasty. Now, I've got another picture for you here. This is a picture of Herod himself. This is a mosaic that dates back to the 5th century, around 434 um, A.D., at the construction of a basilica or a church in uh, Rome. I'll tell you about that here in just a second. But you'll notice at the top of that mosaic is the word Herodes. Herodes is the Latin and Greek rendering of the name Herod. 
Um, here's a picture of the church where this uh, is actually in. It's the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, which is St. Mary Major, which is referring to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, the, some of the pictures that you see there of the exterior facade, obviously it's been added onto through the centuries and restructured and things. But that is the actual church that was built in 434 B.C. The inside pictures that you see there are, uh, I mean, I mean, they didn't leave any wall untouched, right? And so they didn't have oil paintings back then, but what they did have was they had these mosaics, and so they would create pictures using these mosaics. Back to our mosaic picture of Herod. Uh, you can see Herod there. He's got a beard. That would have been typical of the Jews of his day. He's wearing a blue cloak and a Roman military attire. You see the little skirt that he's got on? Kind of looks like one of those Roman military guys. This is the earliest picture that exists today of Herod the Great. You say, well, why wasn't there a bust made of him? You know, kind of like the head and the upper torso part of him, like the Romans were really famous for doing. Well, uh, obviously the Romans did a lot of that, but they did not do that for Herod. And the reason was is because the Jewish people were taught that you were not supposed to make any graven images. And so they took commandment number two very seriously. If you're a Jew, you're not supposed to make an image of yourself. And so because of that, because Herod was, he, wanted to, he wanted to rule over these Jewish people, he wanted to maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He didn't want to upset the Jewish people that he was ruling. So because of that, he didn't allow any images or likenesses of himself to be made. For example, if you take a look at this coin here, this is the front side and back side of a coin that he had commissioned. On this coin, you see the helmet of Herod. And on the back side, you see a tripod with a uh, ceremonial bowl on top of it. Typically, rulers, when they had a coin commission, they'd have an image of themselves that was struck on that coin, but not Herod, again, because he's ruling the Jewish, Jewish people. Now, I've got one more picture for you here. These are the bases of two statues that are situated atop the Acropolis in Athens. The inscriptions on them say that the, state, that the statues were dedicated to Herodes Basileus, which is Greek, which means Herod the king. Now, the bronze statues that used to be on top of these bases are long gone, but the fact that these bases exist confirms that Herod did not allow any graven images of himself to be made and cast and displayed in Israel, but he was more than happy for those to be displayed someplace else, right? Herod is not interested in preserving the laws of the Jewish people. Herod is not some sort of a religious fanatic or hyper-religious guy. He was just merely acting in bounds of prudence, right? He knew that the Jewish people would be upset if he had some image of himself struck. And so because of that, he observed that within that territory. But he was more than willing to send some money to Athens. He was more than willing to send some money to other places around the Roman Empire to have statues of himself erected. So what did Herod look like? Well, maybe he had a beard, but that's about all that we have to go on. What about his accomplishments? Well, Herod the Great, it should be noted, was a builder. Um, it was Herod the Great who was responsible for constructing numerous aqueducts all around Judea. I also have a picture of the fortress at Masada that he had constructed. It has 1,300-foot vertical drop-offs that go from the side of that cliff that you see there. Herod the Great was also responsible for renovating and made opulent the temple complex in Jerusalem. He even built a retreat home for himself. Got several pictures of that for you here. Called Herodium. It sat eight miles southeast of Jerusalem. You can see the mound on top of which the family home was constructed. And then there's kind of a sketch drawing that rebuilds uh, what all of this would have looked like in real life. Um, it was easily defended given the height and the steep slopes of this uh, setting. There were pools and gardens down in the flatland below. In fact, Herodium is where the first century historian Josephus reports, there's a quote in the next slide with, his, with Herod's sarcophagus, where Josephus reports that Herod's body was carried after his death. 
Um, archaeologists have excavated the site at Herodium and have found that what they believe to be the sarcophagus of Herod the Great. It's that rose-colored stone sarcophagus that you see there in that picture, along with the quote from Josephus. You say, well, Gordon, why does any of this matter? Right? Why are you telling us about coins that got struck and mosaics? And why does it matter that there were inscriptions on bases of statues and pictures of archaeological dig sites? What's the point of all that? Why do I need to know any of that? I feel like I'm back in history class, right? Well, it matters, first of all, because these extra-biblical sources help us paint a picture of what was going on amongst the characters and the events that the Bible describes. So they give us a source of information beyond just what we have in the Bible that helps us um, understand the people and the events that take place that the Bible describes. Secondly, and most importantly, why we need to know this is because every time our friends, the archaeologists, dig something else out of the ground, they confirm the reliability and the accuracy of the biblical text. That's awesome. Friends, this book is not, this is not describing Hogwarts. <laughs> Some of you are a little bit too old to get that, right? <laughs> this is not Narnia. Let me try that one. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. That is not what we are looking at here. This is real history. These are real people. These are real events that are described. And if it's not, then we are, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19, we are of all people most to be pitied because we have put our hope and our faith and our trust for where we're going to go in the afterlife and what this book teaches us, friends. And if this book is not reliable, if this book is not trustworthy, if this book is not true, then as Paul said, we are to be pitied most amongst all people. So thank God for our friends, the archaeologists, who confirm the accuracy and the reliability of the biblical record. If you're here today, you've been thinking about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the hope for your eternity, but you've been hesitating because you've been wondering, is this stuff real? Well, friends, hesitate no longer. Take confidence in the fact that the witness of this book is overwhelmingly confirmed by the archaeological record. Waste no more time living in the land of skepticism. Come to faith in Christ. Put your trust in him. Do it today. Wait no longer. Something for you to think about. All right, let's move on. Who is Herod the Great of Matthew chapter 2? He is Herod, I'm sorry, who is the Herod of Matthew chapter 2? He is Herod the Great, the first king of the Herodian dynasty. Now we learned um, from what we read earlier that Herod the Great commits an awful act of barbarity. He ordered the killing of the infant children of Bethlehem. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. Then Herod the Great, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Let's stop there. Last week, we learned that the wise men came to Herod. They told him, hey, look, we've seen this star. We've been following this star. And this star, we believe, indicates the birth of a new king of the Jews. Herod said, well, let me tell you where you can find him. He gathered together some of his advisors. They said to go to Bethlehem. He tells them that they need to go to Bethlehem. This baby that you're looking for is in Bethlehem. But he told them this on one condition, with one stipulation, verse 8. He said, go and search diligently for the child and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In other words, Herod said, in order, I'm going to share this information with you about where to find this Christ child, but here's the deal. I want you to come back to me and tell me where you found the baby. Now, Herod had no intention of worshiping this child. Herod only wanted to find the child, locate the child, so that he can go and knock off the child. Uh, that was his motivation. The wise men then leave Herod, travel to Bethlehem, 
locate baby Jesus, and offer their gifts. Verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men get wise to what it is that Herod's up to. And so they offer their gifts to baby Jesus, and then they slip on out of town. Back to verse 16. Herod's response is, he is furious. So what does Herod decide to do? Does he send some soldiers down there to Bethlehem? Hey, guys, go knock on doors until you find that baby. No, something much worse than that. Middle of verse 16, he sent a contingency of soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod is taking no chances. He is going to wipe out everybody that might possibly fit the description of this uh, one born king of the Jews. This event has been what has been referred to in church history as the Massacre of the Innocents. The Massacre of the Innocents. I've got a painting for you here by Guido Reni, Oil on Canvas. This is Reni's depiction of this event. Now, there are numerous other paintings of the Massacre of the Innocents, but I could not share them with you this morning. They are just too graphic, and I want to keep us in a PG land here. So this is the, the least, I would say, the least offensive uh, or the least graphic of the paintings that exist uh, depicting this event. Soldiers barred into homes, snatched babies out of their mother's arms, and then took the infant child outside, bashed its head against a wall, and stood there while it died. The doorsteps around Bethlehem were covered in blood. Some scholars suggest, based on the population of the small town of Bethlehem, then something like 30 or 40 babies were likely slaughtered that night. Church tradition holds the number was significantly more, especially when you consider what the text says, where it says that not only did they go to Bethlehem and do this, but also the surrounding region. Whichever the case, it was an act of barbarity, a crime against humanity. Now, hear what Jesus has to say about little children. Jesus advocated for the little ones when he said, Luke 18 and verse 16, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. On another occasion, Jesus said, Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, or some translations say to stumble, it would be better for that one to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Jesus loved the little children. We learned that as children ourselves. We sang the song. Jesus loves the little, okay, all the children of the world, that's right. Herod, on the other hand, did not care about the little children, did not love the little children. Herod's primary focus was the retention of his throne and the continuation of his family name. No matter the cost, Herod would hurt anyone, clearly. Herod would kill anyone, clearly. And he would do this uh, he would not allow anyone to stand between his, himself and his claim to power. Again, let's take a look at history. Does this bear out in history as well? When Herod the Great rose to power, i got a slide for you here. I don't know how well you all can see it, but the information's there. His first act as the new king in 37 BC was to put to death 46 members of the Jewish high council, known as the Sanhedrin. So when he came into power in 37 BC, he took the highest political officers in the land of Israel and wiped them all out. Two years later, in 35 B.C., he had his own brother-in-law drowned in a swimming pool. Um, six years later, in 29 B.C., he had the sister of that brother-in-law, his wife, Mary Amne, 
killed or executed on suspicion of being unfaithful, which he wasn't. And then shortly after, he had his own mother-in-law, Alexander, killed. The next year, he executed yet another brother-in-law on suspicion of conspiracy. In 12 BC, he puts his two sons by Mariamne, the wife that he had killed, the two sons that he had by her, he puts them on trial, accusing them of conspiracy to try and kill him. Well, they reconciled, but then five years later in the year 7 BC, uh, he brought them to trial again and had his two sons executed. In 4 BC, anticipating his own death, Herod ordered that a list of his political opponents be rounded up. He literally had them go around the nation of Israel and find the top political leaders all in the different regions around the land of Israel, around the land of Judea. And he brought them all together, held them in a, uh, a big giant uh, outdoor arena, and kept soldiers there at guard. And he, his orders were, at the moment of my death, all of these soldiers are to, or all of these political leaders are to be killed. His reasoning, I want to make sure that when I die, there is weeping, not celebration in the land of Israel. In 4 BC, just five days before Herod died, he suspected another of his sons, Antipater, of trying to steal the throne from him, and he had his son Antipater executed. Throughout all these trials and executions, Herod was constantly amending his will. The man, would you agree, was highly paranoid? violent. We would certainly say evil. It's written all over his life. It was Caesar Augustus. I got a quote from him here who said about Herod the Great, and I quote, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. Caesar was right on. All right, well, with that, I want to stop here and take a time out and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You're wondering to yourself, hey, Gordon, nice history lesson. Glad to know who Herod the Great is. But, you know, I got Christmas presents to buy. I got Christmas parties to plan. I got places to go. I got to convince my kids that Christmas break hasn't stopped yet and keep working because school's not quite done, right? Uh, so what dif- how, does, how does any of this apply to me? What difference does all this stuff about Herod make to my life? Well, that's a great question. See if we can answer that. Let me read to you a statement written by John Murray. Got another slide here. He is former president of the American Atheist Society. His mom, by the way, was Madeline Murray O'Hare. Ring a bell. She's responsible for the separation of church and state in schools and across America. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Uh, So that's who you're dealing with here. John Murray writes, and I quote, There was no such person in the history of the world as Jesus Christ. Hmm. There was no historical, living, breathing, sentient human being by that name, Ever. He says the Bible is a fictional, non-historical narrative. It is a myth that is good for business. Now let's first acknowledge that Murray's statement is outrageous. It's intended to be so. It is dismissive. His statement is dishonest. His statement is unintellectual because it does not take into account all the archaeological evidence that exists, that corroborates, that shows that the Bible is a reliable source of truth. Archaeological evidence, as we already stated, proves the reliability and the trustworthiness of the biblical record. But Murray does not want to entertain any of that evidence because to do so would mean that the Bible is elevated and the Bible is something he has to take seriously. And he didn't want to contend with that. As long as Murray can superficially keep the Bible in the fictional and non-historical category, then he can just dismiss it outright. But When the Bible becomes something that is historically reliable and teaches events about real people and real places and and real stuff, then all of a sudden uh, that becomes not good for Murray's business. So he just makes this wild claims in hopes of taking biblical authority off the table. 
What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, there is a movement within evangelicalism that encourages believers to view the Bible the way Murray views the Bible, as fictional and non-historical. This perspective is being taught in our seminaries, now being taught by several prominent pastors across the country. The people who propagate this perspective want to remind us that the culture that we live in has become increasingly naturalistic and secular. Let me give you a definition of those two terms. Naturalism is a belief that the physical world is all that there is, that the natural world is all there is. It's kind of like uh, Carl Sagan used to say back in the day, he would say the cosmos is all there is, all there ever will be, and, and that's it. It's just the world. That's all there is. So when the Bible talks about Jesus walking on water, if I'm trying to evangelize somebody who's been raised in a naturalistic worldview that thinks that the world, you know, the natural world's all there is, and I come to them and I tell them about this guy who walked on water, well, that may be something that might potentially be a barrier to them coming to faith in Christ. That may stand between them and putting their faith in Jesus. And so, you know, they don't want to ask a would-be convert to possibly believe in miracles because that would... That would not jive with their naturalistic worldview or their naturalistic perspective. But somehow we're going to insist that a dead man was raised back to life. So swallowing at caps or swallowing at gnats and swallow and oh, anyhow, the statement that Jesus made. <clears throat> Straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Secular, meaning that the values and morals of the culture are out of step with the Bible. So again, let's not mention the clobber passages. Let's not mention the passages that talk about or might offend someone's particular lifestyle or way of life. Because again, we don't want those moral standards to stand in the way of somebody coming to faith in Christ. But friends, isn't that part of what Jesus came to do? He came to call us out of our lives the way we used to live them. Jesus came to call us to a new life in Jesus Christ. Friends, these prominent pastors, I think, are, their intentions are good and honorable, some of them anyways. But the results have been and will continue to be catastrophic. Friends, when we join the ranks of John Murray and mythologize the Bible, we diminish the Bible's ability to speak authoritatively into our lives. It just becomes one opinion amongst a sea of opinions. We basically take our personal opinions then and elevate those alongside or even above what Scripture has to say. Friends, God gave us this book, 2 Timothy 3.16, says all Scripture is God-breathed. And then Paul goes on to say how we are supposed to use this to teach and to reprove and to correct and to train people up into righteousness. God gets to find what is righteous, not public opinion. Paul goes on to say to Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means be ready all the time to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, you want to know what the real myth of the world is? The real myth of the world is that this book isn't true. That's the real myth. My hope today is that pictures of coins and pictures of statue bases that sit atop the Acropolis in Athens, <clears throat> Greece. I thought that was going to be a good line, but anyway. <laughs> pictures of places like the Herodium, that awareness of those artifacts and dig sites 
confer- that confirm the biblical record, my hope is that all of those together give birth to a renewed and revitalized confidence in the Word of God, and that this becomes more so, even more so after hearing all this stuff today, an authoritative, the authoritative true source for your life, your default when it comes to all issues and all matters. That's point number one. Point number two, this is my last thought for the day, and I'll try to be brief here. Point number two, what difference does all this make to my life? Number two, it teaches us that what goes around comes around. Let me explain. I've got somewhat of a quote from, uh, somewhat of a lengthy quote here from Josephus' writings. Josephus was a first century historian. I mentioned him a few moments ago. Um, he was, uh, wrote a lot about the history of the Jewish people alongside the Romans and so how those two things intersected. And so a lot of what Josephus has to write in the first century is intersecting with biblical history. So this is a source outside the Bible that confirms what the Bible has to say. Among the things that Josephus writes about, he writes about the death of Herod the Great. Josephus writes, and I quote, After this, talking about the death of Herod, the distemper seized upon Herod's whole body and greatly disordered all its parts with various symptoms. For there was a gentle fever upon him and an intolerable itching over all the surface of his body. He also had continual pains in his colon and dropsical tumors about his feet. Dropsy is a medical condition, basically water retention in this guy's feet. I'm sure his feet swelled up massively if it's untreated, which it, wouldn't have, it would have been in Herod's day. He would have ended up with cellulitis, which is horribly painful and odorous. Josephus continues, Herod had an inflammation of the abdomen. You might think that his tummy was visibly red and uh, swollen. He said he had a putrefaction. I won't say where Josephus says where, but I won't say it. Let's just acknowledge that he had putrefaction and that it resulted in it produced worms coming out of his body. It became so bad that Herod tried to kill himself. Josephus continues, but presently after he was overborne by his pains and by a convulsive cough and endeavored to prevent a natural death, that is, he wanted to just end his life. He was tired of the suffering that he was experiencing. So he tried to stab himself. But Acabus, his first cousin, came running into him, held his hand, and hindered him from doing so. Josephus reports that Herod tried several methods to ease his pain. He dipped, for example, he had them dip him in uh, warm oil. That didn't go so well. Herod ended up blind for a time period after that. And then it was at this point that he ordered his son Antipater, Antipater to be executed. So he lashed out at the people around him in his final days in response to his own pain. I say all that to make this one final statement from Josephus. Josephus estimates why all of this was happening to him, why Herod was experiencing all this tremendous suffering in his physical body in his final days. Josephus writes, The holy men of Israel said, Those diseases were a punishment upon Herod for his crimes. Friends, the holy men of Israel knew that there is an irrefutable law of the universe, and that is that the God of the universe is watching, and he will repay each according to what he has done, Revelation chapter 20. Jesus, or Moses, speaking to the Israelites, reminded them of this principle, Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23, but if you will not do so, in other words, if you will not follow the law of God, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sins will find you out. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, reminded them the same, Galatians 6 and verse 7, 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, God's not going to be made a fool of. What you reap is what you will, or what you sow is what you will reap. In modern times, we have a saying that goes like this. What goes around, comes around. What does the story of Herod the Great teach us? It is a sobering reminder that ain't nobody getting away with anything. Jesus said it this way. Luke chapter 8 and verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be, that will not be known and come to light. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Part of the reason why people are out of control and stealing and mugging people and looting and killing and fornicating, living as though they are with, living with impunity. Part of the reason is a loss of a healthy fear of God. Friends, America is becoming John Murray's world. A world where God is no longer in view. Well, I got news for us. God does exist. And the day of reckoning is coming. Now, I might not be able to control what my, happens at my neighbor's house, but I sure can control what happens in my life and in my home. I'll close with this. Live every day like God is watching. Because he is. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for this sobering reminder as we look at the life of a man who lived without you in view. His whole life was a law unto himself. Lord, may we never, never live our lives that way. May we rather, Lord, live our lives in light of who you are and knowing that you as our heavenly father, like a loving heavenly father, is watching over us and wants to bring accountability into the actions of our everyday lives. Jesus, if there's some stuff in our life, some areas in our life that we need to submit to you, that we need to clean up, we come to you now in this time of communion. Lord, use this space for us to say, yes, God, I, I recognize that I've been, I've been living a life unto my own sense of morality, unto my own sense of values. And Lord, may we say today with our whole heart, God, I want to put all of me on the altar. I want to put all of me at the foot of your cross, Jesus. Lord, work in our hearts today where you know we need work done. Lord, we give you this space. Minister and work into our hearts, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.